Crybaby and Graffiti Bridge hit the big screen. The mighty Ike goes to prison, and Mandela is freed. Simpsons start its amazing run. Miami Vice, Eurythmics, and Spandau Ballet are all done. We lose the incredible Stevie Ray and lovable Sammy Davis Jr. too. 49ers, Reds, and Pistons show us what they can do. Priest wins their court case, and Billy wrecks his bike. And Hollywood finally turns 21, and Jack Daniels' stock spikes. Yes, people, we are talking all things 1990 on Growing Up Rock. Now, crank it up. Hollywood, we're kicking off the month of August with a month-long series that takes a look at things that are celebrating their 30th anniversary. So all music, movies, TV, everything that happened in 1990 is turning 30 this year, and we're going to explore some of those things. What's going on there, dude? Dude, I'm in Vegas right now. Vegas, baby. So is that called lost COVID or is it lost virus? How are things happening there these days? You would be surprised. So I would say the crowds are about a third. All the casinos are requiring masks. So like we're staying at Caesars right now. You take your mask off, man, they are all over you about taking your mask off. Uh, you know, drunk people are going to be drunk people. So I'm playing at the tables the other day. Homie takes a sip of his beer, puts it down, doesn't put his mask back on. Here comes the pit boss. Hey, you don't have your mask on. I was drinking beer. And, you know, he was into his probably 30th one. Who knows? So he got told like four or five times, and then they threatened to evict him. Some guy was standing behind him watching, and they have this thing where the table games that I play usually had six seats. Now they just have three. But if you're going to be a spectator, you have to be six feet behind the table. So they have like this little, you know, round sticker that you can stand on. So homie was also drunk, but wanted to spectate. So he starts measuring off the six feet to show that the sticker was not placed in the right place. So they just kicked his ass out. It was just easier to just kick his ass out. Kicked his ass out <laughs> or took him back and had a hammer to him. Come on, man. Dude, this isn't casino. <laughs> in my head, it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Turns out this guy and his fucking pals 
They were knocking this place dead for years. Cheater's justice! I wanted everybody to know that things were changed around here. We had to make an example of these pricks that the party was over. I'm just curious. I saw you shuffling your checks with your right hand. Can you do that with both hands? No. Can't do it with both hands? No, sir. Can you do it with your left hand? Oh, I, I never tried. So you're right. Yeah. At Caesars, it's interesting. So everybody's wearing a mask at the table, let's say, and the dealer is wearing a mask and then the shield. And the signs specifically say you must wear a face covering that covers your nose and mouth tightly. Yep. So you can't just wear a shield. So that's it really, right? There's three seats. Everybody's got a mask on. The dealer has a shield over their mask and they're just dealing the cards normally. They're switching out the cards like every hour, which they used to do probably every two hours maybe. And maybe they're switching them off. Yeah, it's probably every hour. It might be every half hour. I don't know. The time got a little messed up because I just sit there. Are there any shows happening? No shows. No shows are happening. The other thing that I was trying to figure out is how they were going to clean the chips. So you know how you'll walk by a table and there's nobody sitting there, but the dealer's just standing there? Yeah. So what they're doing is when they're standing there, they lay down a towel. They lay down all the chips in single file, spray them all down, put another towel on top of it, wipe it all off, put that set of chips back in the in the tray. Wow. Rooms. They clean them for you get here. They don't touch them again until you leave. Wow. Oh, really? So no, no, like, what do they do? Just bring you a set of towels and give you new towels every day or what? If you want, yeah. All you got to do is, it's Caesars. It's a chat bot called Ivy. So you just text chat Ivy and say, I need towels. And somebody comes and knocks on your door and leaves towels there. Oh, wow. No room service. And like I said, it's Caesars. It's semi-normal. At Bellagio, it's a total different thing, dude. It's like, so imagine that you are playing at a poker table. Instead of having nine chairs, they have six. Everybody's got masks on. The dealer has a mask, uh, the face shield. So that's the same. Then on top of that, they have plastic dividers that are this contraption that you can basically fold and take to any table that separate the six of you in your own space. And there's a hole cut at the bottom, kind of like at your local grocery store where you can hand cash back and forth. That's what they're dealing the cards through. So you can get your cards, and that's where you put your chips in for the bet. Interesting. So then it sounds like everybody's kind of doing their own thing to a point then? A little bit. My guess is the Gaming Commission said you must do X as minimum, yeah. and then people are going over that. And you would be surprised. like Most people have a mask on almost all the time. Like if you told everybody – I was telling somebody yesterday – if you told all of America – that, hey, 130,000 random people are going to die if you don't start wearing blue every day. You couldn't get everybody to wear blue every day. But everybody's wearing a mask. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, that's good because a lot of places people aren't. So whatever. But, man, that's crazy. All right. So like I said in the beginning, we're kicking off the month of August, which is all things 1990. And we got a different themed episode coming every week in August. So we'll have game show episode trivia. We'll have top 10, top 21 type thing. We'll have a couple guests on. It's going to be a fun time. We've got some good episodes lined up, but it'll all center around things that were going on in 1990. So the 30th anniversary for a lot of this stuff. And 
for music, 1990 was kind of a turning point in terms of the landscape. The musical landscape started changing just a little bit. It wasn't full-on grunge, and we still had some hair metal going on. So it was kind of that in-between gap. And I thought that maybe 1990 would be a little bit more interesting to explore than, say, 1980, which is the 40th anniversary for a lot of stuff. And there was a ridiculous amount of music in 1980 that was released. So literally, we would be here for months. But hey, we still got a few months left in the year. So you never know. We might cover 1980 at some point this year, maybe. The other hard part about 80 is unlike you, I was only 11. See, you were already 30. So it's easier for you to do 80. It would be harder for me. (laughs) Yeah. All right, smart ass. Don't you worry. We're going to get into how old each one of us was in 1990, and that'll tell the truth. But before we do all of that, we got to do this. It's time for the Crank It Up New Music Spotlight. All right, so just like we usually do, we crank it up New Music Spotlight. And tonight's featured artist is going to be Michael Grant and the Assassins. They just put out a new record called Always the Villain, and the new song that we're going to play leads off the album. It's called Barrel of a Gun. Check this out.
that's actually my favorite song on that album. That album has a lot of differences to it. It's not exactly super cohesive. Grant surprised me with a vocal. That is him singing, right? That is. Actually, Michael Grant played all the instruments on this record. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. It's got, uh, this one's got a little bit of a L.A. Guns flavor. That's, I think that's why I like it. Well, this song is most reminiscent of his old band when I first saw him, which was called End Ever After. And this is very reminiscent of that band. He plays all the instruments on the record, just like I said. He's been working on this record since 2018. And actually, I heard a couple of power pop songs on this record that I thought you might appreciate more so than this song. But this song is good. I like it. It's probably my favorite on the record. There's a few other ones. I think this is a record that, like you said, it's there's not a whole lot of cohesiveness, so it's sort of all over the place, but not necessarily in a bad way. So I think there's a lot of textures to this record, and I think that if you spent time with this record, it might be one of those records that actually grows on you. Now, were the Assassins booked on the next cruise, or were they on the last cruise and I missed them? They were on the 2019 cruise that we did, and both of us missed them because they just oh. they weren't on our priority list. Making your way in the world today Takes everything you've got Taking a break from all your worries Sure would help a lot Wouldn't you like to get away Sometimes you want to go Where everybody knows your name And they're always back So on August 12, 2018, we released an episode called This Ain't No Disco 1990, and we discussed a bunch of different things. Alice in Chains, Pantera, Queensryche, Poisoning Bay, King's X, Lynch Mob, Pretty Maids. If you want to go check it out, check it out. But we hinted that we may revisit the 1990 topic at some point because it was such a big year. And really, you know, for me... 86, 87, 88, 89, and 90 were major, major years and probably the formation of what I listened to today. And there was a ton of music then. And, you know, movies were big then. TV was big then. Music was big then. Like the entertainment industry was probably making money hand over fist at that point. So we figured on this episode, we could talk a little bit of music. We'll talk a little bit of movies. We'll talk a little bit of TV maybe some concerts we've seen, et cetera. So uh, it should be a fun time. Uh, let's start with this. I was 21 and 90. So I turned 21 in October of 1990. So I finally didn't have to buy those damn drink tickets at every club we were going to to see opening acts. You were 37? Yeah, much to your dismay, a-hole. I was only 24 uh, in 1990. So yeah, good try. I'm not that much older than you. I'm just old enough. I'm just a little bit older and wiser and obviously much better looking, but that's just me. Wow. And where <laughs> were you living at this time? I was living here in Atlanta and working at a record distributor in 1990. Yeah, I was uh, in San Francisco and I was well into uh, my retail career at that point. So actually, I was already in management, so I was making enough money to go see basically any show I wanted. And oh my God. Did I see a lot of concerts that one year? Is it me or 
does Hollywood seem like he's gloating about making bank and hitting up all the cool concerts? What an a-hole. Just to give you an idea of some of the bands I saw. Bad English, Faster Pussycat, Crew, Soundgarden. I don't even know if you remember a band called Voivod. Yep. Greg Kinn, Y&T, Great White, Macaulay Schenker, Babylon AD, Guns, Fraley, Lord Tracy, The Crows, Badlands. I saw Whitesnake a couple of times. I saw Bad English three or four times. I saw Rush for some damn reason because Mr. Big opened. I saw Black Crows a couple of times. Saw Kiss twice with the Winger and Slaughter opening. Saw Bad Companies. Saw Damn Yankees. I think I saw Y&T three or four times that year. Saw Striper in a club twice. Saw Alice in Chains open for Extreme in a club, which was a great show. For somebody must have talked me into going to Testament, Megadeth, and Judas Priest because I can't imagine I did that on my own. I actually saw Cheap Trick once. It was the only time, the only year that I ever saw ACDC. And uh, I remember Love Hate opened and I was wondering why I was there. (laughs) Man, I'll tell you what. So to anybody that doesn't really know Sonny and I, we both have a little bit of OCD. But let me just tell you, Sonny's is so bad that he actually has a list and dates of all these concerts he went to and the place he saw them. What the hell, dude? I had to look at your list and decide whether or not I saw any of these tours. I saw a few of them. I know I saw the Kiss Slaughter Winger thing. What else did I see? Man, I can't believe you saw Macaulay Schenker. That's cool. I don't know. That's the only thing. I can't remember the dates. I saw White Snake for sure around that time. But like we said before, you living on the West Coast, you have a lot more ability to see a lot of great shows than somebody that lives in the Southeast. So good on you, man. That's a lot of shows. Yeah, that Macaulay Shanker show was Havana Black opening, Macaulay Shanker in support, and Great White was a headliner at the Warfield. So Warfield's basically a theater. And I'm glad I got this OCD because I had started this on my Apple IIc computer, by the way. (laughs) That's when I started it. And uh, now I'm on Windows. But if I had not started logging some of these, we had a fire in 2010, 11, 2011, which my concert stubs and all that were in the garage and they all burned. So I would have lost all my concert stubs. So I'd have had no idea. Yeah, that's crazy, man. There's just no way. I don't know what happened to my concert stubs. Like I've said many a times, it it pains me because I had probably my first 20 concert stubs that I ever went to. I had the stubs and they were the cool stubs from back in the day, like before they started the electronic tickets. So they had like the painted you know, logo on there and stuff like that. And I had them in a frame somewhere and, you know, I just can't find them. I don't know whatever happened to them. Might've lost them in a move or might've got caught up with a bunch of other paper and got thrown away. It hurts me bad. (laughs) So next we want to kind of talk about the Billboard 100. So if you think about 1990, grunge and hair metal are about to cross paths. So grunge is just getting, I'm saying just getting started because I'm saying it's just starting to hit the charts. It's been underground here for a while. Hair metal's been all over the charts. It's about to tail off really. And of course, pop is all over the charts because we've got some of the biggest pop acts in history in the 80s and early 90s. And of course, R&B is still there and rap is still there. Well, 
rap is just now starting to really hit its stride. It's not that rap hasn't been around. Rap has been around, but around 1990, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, it's really starting to plug away at the charts. And in fact, in 1990, you have the first number one rap hit, which we'll talk about. Yeah. So here were the number one songs and how many weeks they were number one. So Another Day in Paradise by Phil Collins was number one for two weeks after it was already number one for two weeks in December of 89. Then it went to three-week run of How Am I Supposed to Live Without You by Michael Bolton. Then a three-week run for Opposites Attract by Paula Abdul. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I like that song. It just makes me laugh. Then we went to a three-week run of Escapade by Janet Jackson. Two weeks of Black Velvet by Alana Miles. Then Love Will Lead You Back by Taylor Dane took over for a week. I'll Be Your Everything by Tommy Page for a week. That's one of the songs I don't know that song at all. Nope. Four weeks of a Prince song. Well, nothing compares to you by Sinead O'Connor. But, you know, she's such a pain in the ass that she's taking shots at Prince after he dies. And she had a number one hit that Prince wrote. So I can't let it go. Sorry. <laughs> you shouldn't talk. You know, you shouldn't take shots at a guy who just died, especially when they made you who you are. What a dumbass. Sorry. Never liked that song by her. Never liked her. She just doesn't, didn't do anything for me. I wasn't into it at the time. Vogue by Madonna was number one for three weeks. Hold On by Wilson Phillips for a week. Must Have Been Love by Roxette for a couple of weeks. One of Stephen's favorites, New Kids on the Block, Step by Step. Yeah. For three weeks. Good for you. She Ain't Worth It by Glenn Metarios and Bobby Brown. I don't think I know that song. It was number one for two weeks. I don't recognize that one either. Yeah. Vision of Love by Mariah Carey was number one for four weeks. If Wishes Came True by Sweet Sensation took over for a week. Don't know that one. By some ungodly reason, Blaze of Glory by John Bon Jovi was number one for a week. I guess there was nothing else to listen to at that time. Release Me by Wilson Phillips for two weeks. Can't Live Without Your Love and Affection by Nelson for a week. Close to You by Maxi Priest. Great song. It was only number one for a week. I can't believe it. Praying for Time by George Michael for a week. I know a lot of George Michael songs. I don't know that one. It's not ringing any bells. Yeah. I Don't Have the Heart by James Ingram. Great song. Number one for a week. Black Cat by Janet Jackson had a number one hit for a week. Love it. Ice Ice Baby, your buddy Vanilla Ice. That's what you're talking about? Yeah. Number one. That's your first rap uh, number one uh, hit. Yeah. All right, stop. Collaborate and listen. I sit back with my brand new invention. Something grabs a hold of me tightly. Flow like a harpoon daily and nightly. Will it ever stop? Yo, I don't know. Turn off the lights and I'll glow. To the extreme, I rock a mic like a vandal. Light up a stage and wax a chump like a candle. Unfortunate. <laughs> Didn't he got sued for that, right? Because he used under pressure? Uh, I don't know. Did he actually try to use that without licensing that? Yeah, yeah. He used it, then said it didn't sound the same, and got sued by Bowie and Queen. Uh, well, he should have been, because that was a pure sample. This was also the time where a lot of samples were being used, and people were starting to kind of raise an eyebrow about that. Uh, what year was like uh, the Tone Loke and all that stuff? It had to be roughly around the same time, it seems like. Yeah, I think uh, Wild Thing was 88, 89, maybe. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure of that. And then a few others, Love Takes Time by Mariah Carey was number one for three weeks. I'm Your Baby Tonight by Whitney Houston for a week. And then the year ended with a almost full December run of Because I Love You, the Postman song by Stevie B being number one for four weeks. That's a 
good song. It's a ballad, but it's a great song. Slow month. <laughs> yeah, slow month. Well, it is December. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody listens to music in December. They're busy listening to uh, Christmas carols. <laughs> it's a great song. You're you're mean. I'm not the one that dissed uh, John Bon Jovi. Come on, dude. Blaze of oh, Glory. Dude, that's all right, come dude. Come on. That's all right. Just number one, dude. Come on. Uh, hey, it could have been a slow week. Uh, that's possible. One of the songs I wanted to highlight from 1990 is from Hall Notes. So I'm a huge Hall Notes fan. You guys have heard me say that before. It's one of my top 10 bands. And they released Change of Season in 1990. 14th album. At this point, Hall Notes is basically dead. They've had 29 top 40 singles. 15 of those hit top 10. Seven went to number one. And their last number one was in 1984. This album got to number 60 on the Billboard 200. It had four singles, Don't Hold Back Your Love, which got to number 41, which is a great little ballad type thing. Everywhere I Look, which didn't chart. Starting All Over Again, which is an incredible song that didn't chart. And then this song, which was their first single, it got to number 11 on the Billboard 100, is co-written by our Blaze of Glory buddy, John Bon Jovi, and ended up being their last top 40 hit to date. Here is So Close.
I didn't know that Bon Jovi had a co-write uh, with Hall & Oates. I don't know this song very well, but, I mean, it sounds like standard Hall & Oates. I mean, I like it. I like Hall & Oates. I'm a Hall & Oates fan, too, but uh, mainly the hits. I got, you know, a couple of greatest hits records, and that's all I really need to have. How's this record as a whole? Is it any good? Uh, it's 50-50. Yeah. I mean, it's it doesn't have, you know, that voices type of um, big, big hits. But Hall and Oates does a good job of when they put those greatest hits together, not all of those were like top 40 hits. Some of them were songs they wish would have been released as singles. So stuff like Family Man ends up on those type of lists. So they do a good job of putting those greatest hits together. So that way you get a flavor of all of who they are. Right. Yeah, no doubt. Well, uh, so that brings me to the point where I really wanted to play Ice Ice Baby, but Sonny put his foot down and said, there's no way in hell I'm going to be able to play this. All right, stop, collaborate and listen. Ice is back with my brand new invention, something. Uh, after he plays a Hall & Oates song. So I uh, conceded that and I decided to pick this and play this instead. Here you go. Yeah. 
All right, so that's 7 o'clock by the Choir Boys. Choir Boys have a lot of stuff that I'm not a huge fan of, and they have a lot of stuff that I like. They're just a straight-up rock and roll band. Sonny, I don't think, is too big of a fan, but I like the Rod Stewart vocals by Spike. He's been around for a long time. The band has changed its course many, many times from the Choir Boys, the London Choir Boys, all kinds of things, but they've been in existence. They're usually on the Monsters of Rock cruise. They're just a straight rock and roll band. They're not necessarily hard rock. They're sure as hell ain't metal. They're just, uh, yeah, it is what it is, but I like seven o'clock. It could have been a hit for Rod Stewart for sure at some point in time. So there you go. Yeah. That's actually my favorite song by them. I don't hear a ton of Rod Stewart and Spike's voice. It's just the songwriting by these guys. Just It just does not catch me as memorable, I guess. So, But I've never gotten into the choir boys. Maybe it was bad timing. I don't know. Well, no, I think they just have too much variety and stuff. Like I said, there's not one album that I love start to finish. So I kind of pick and choose the songs that I listen to. You, really? You don't hear Rod Stewart and his voice at all? Not really. And I'm a Stewart fan, too. Hmm. Interesting. All right, so we wanted to talk a little bit about movies in 1990. So here is the top 10 worldwide grossing movies for 1990. And number 10 was Kindergarten Cop. God damn, it wasn't a slow year for movies. I don't know, that movie's not great. (laughs) Uh, Number nine was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is about to become huge at this point. The movie just took them over the top. And the movie blew too. That movie wasn't good either. No, it wasn't. Uh, Presumed Innocent. I think that's, uh, is that um, Harrison Ford? You know, I'm not that familiar with it. I I remember the title, but I can't necessarily say I've ever seen it, so I don't know. Yeah, that was number eight. Die Hard 2 was number seven. All the Die Hard movies are really, really good. Back to the Future Part 3 was six. Not all the Back to the Future movies are good. (laughs) They could have stopped after number two. That's right. Total Recall was number five. That was the original Total Recall, and I enjoyed that movie. Then there's a big jump because Total Recall sold $261 million worldwide, but the next movie did $424 million. And that's Dances with Wolves, uh, your buddy Costner there, at number four. Did you like that movie? I never saw it. It looked too much of a like a serious type of take your woman movie. I was more into the diehards at that time. Dances with Wolves was just a, it was an epic movie. It's long as hell, but it's, you know, it's about a guy basically getting in with the Indians and learning how to live like an Indian, even though he was a white man. They remade the movie more recently, but they called it Avatar and they made it with a bunch of blue dudes instead. (laughs) Same, Same movie, just different kind of thing. (laughs) funny um number three was pretty woman obviously that's a classic number two home alone with pesci getting hit in the uh, head with an iron right the original home alone man yeah that's a that's a great movie and then you know the number one movie total chick flick but you know what are you gonna do ghost i saw it i i even took a chick to it the movie was what it was did you make uh some pottery afterwards no we didn't i don't know how to do that shit (laughs) But I'll tell you, I was looking through some of the other movies, and some of my favorites that did that aren't obviously on this list, My Blue Heaven was a great movie, Miami Blues, Hunt for Rod October came out this year, yeah. Goodfellas came out this year, Days of Thunder, Cadillac Man. Dude, I love that movie. Poor, uh, rest in peace, Robin Williams. Bad Influence, 
another 48 hours, which both 48 hour movies were good, and Pacific Heights. I don't know if you remember that one, Michael Keaton. He was a little crazy in that one. That's cool. Yeah, there were a lot of great movies. You're absolutely right, and they weren't necessarily chart toppers. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, like I said, the entertainment industry in 1990 is making money like never before, probably. I think VHS was still pretty big at this point. DVDs hadn't reared us ahead yet, right? I'm not real clear on DVDs and stuff like that, but just to give you a, a couple of um, things that were happening around the world of uh, computers in this time frame was Microsoft included Solitaire and Windows in part to familiarize people with drag and drop operations because many of the new computer uh, users were still unfamiliar with uh, the graphical user interfaces, the GUI uh, screens that we know today, right? Okay. That was one thing. Microsoft released Windows (laughs) 3.0 and a 16 megabit chip is shown for the very first time. Ooh. (laughs) <laughs> Ooh, yeah, yeah. And here's one. The first in-car satellite navigation system is sold by Pioneer. Wow, okay. Crazy, right? Yeah, I know CDs were already becoming big because they were in those long-form boxes, if you remember. Mm-hmm. I was updating my collection into CDs from cassettes. Cassettes were just dying off, pretty much. Albums were already pretty much dead at that point. As soon as people found out that cassettes were mobile, right, the album pretty much died. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's interesting. You know what else was really popular around 1990? I told you I worked at this uh, record distributor. The single, the cassette oh, yeah. single was really popular. I got a bunch of those, yeah, because you could buy that for a couple of bucks and see if you like the single before you go buy the cassette. We used to sell pallets of those things. Yeah, and uh, basically, it's smart for... The distributors, no doubt, because the seven-inch single wasn't selling anymore, right? Yep. So then you you put the single out. It's got the single, obviously, and then it's got a B-side that possibly is not on the record or it's a live version or whatever that makes you buy the cassette and buy the single. They got me a couple of times with that. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Okay, so talking about other music real quick, Joan Jett released an album in 1990 called The Hit List. And basically, it was her seventh studio album, and it was an album of all covers. And, you know, by this time, Joan Jett's had three top ten hits, I Hate Myself for Loving You, Crimson and Clover, and I Love Rock and Roll, which went number one. This album got to number 36 on the Billboard 200, and uh, the covers included Love Hurts, Tush, Have You Ever Seen the Rain, Love Me Two Times, and a bunch of covers, honestly, I hadn't heard of. This song, though, that I'm going to play for you, hit the Billboard 100 as her last top 40 hit, and it's the ACDC classic, Dirty Deeds.
So the, <laughs> I like Joan Jett. I really do. I like Joan Jett. So it's a lot of good stuff. She's had a lot of great hits over the course of her career. This is a bit sacrilegious to me. I mean, all I really need to say is, was that a saxophone I heard in Dirty Deeds <laughs> doing a solo? <laughs> Don't be a hater. Dude, how can I not be a hater? Anybody that listens to this show that's a fan of ACDC is going to start throwing eggs or something. I don't know, man. There are just certain things that I don't necessarily need covered. Uh, she starts off the song, which almost sounds like the beginning of Fake Friends or uh, you know, two or three of her other hits as well, has that drum cadence feel to it you know and uh yeah i just she i could have done without the sax it would have been fine i'll continue to listen to bad reputation and be happy uh with joan jett (laughs) uh poor joan Uh, yeah poor joan (laughs) all right uh so you know we talk a lot about prince but one band we don't talk a whole lot about is the protégés poor prince the time I love the time, man. Who doesn't like a little jungle love and jerk out, jerk out. Gotta love the jerk out. But they put out, you know, Prince put out that graffiti bridge record in 1990. I think it actually had a time song on there, if I can remember correctly. But anyway, they released, the time released an album called Pandemonium. And Pandemonium had some really good stuff. Guys like Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis don't get a lot of respect for, they get a great deal of respect when it comes to producing and things like that. But those guys are hell of a players. Those guys can really play. And uh, they do exactly that on this song. Check out Blonde.
Yeah, so the time initially was obviously put together by Prince. So he could do some, he could write some music that wasn't going to land on his albums and maybe be a little bit different than some of the cohesive stuff he was trying to do in his early albums. Morris Day was a childhood friend of his, so that's kind of how Morris Day ended up uh, being in the time. That Purple Rain movie messed everything up because Morris's head got bigger than his ass and he had his head up his ass and then he decided to go solo and go try to do it himself because he was pissed off that Prince wasn't, you know, either sharing enough money or, you know, everything I do has got a hint of Prince in it and that's not right. I'm my own man, you know, that kind of thing. So this Pandemonium thing was supposed to technically be their reunion record. Yeah. And that's basically what it ended up being. I think that's Jesse Johnson playing those guitar solos. But there's rumors that's Prince too. I ain't too sure what's true. I don't have the liner notes in front of me, but I know that there's some great tunes on this record. I liked a lot of it. It definitely has those flashes of rock feel in and out of it. Blondie is certainly one of them. The Time is just a fun band for me. I don't love everything they did, but I like a lot of it, and it's just fun. So, yeah, totally dig that song. That's not something we get to play often, so there you go. So there's a rumor that you want to be the news ticker for 1990. Is that true? <laughs> Are you going to play, what was that dude's name, Cronkite? No, I'm not going to I'm not gonna play Cronkite, but I got a few things to share with people about 1990, if you'll indulge me. Is that cool? Sure. All right. So like you said at the top, the Super Bowl champs for the year were the 49ers, your favorite team, not. The Reds won the World uh, Series. The Pistons won the NBA championship. And for those friends of ours that are hockey fans, which I can't imagine, the Edmonton Oilers won the Stanley Cup that year. Let's see. In 1989, this kid, Michael Doucette, was named America's safest driving team. I simply asked, well, how do you get made America's safest driving team. What's the criteria for that? I have no idea. Like every other teen in America got a ticket? Like, <laughs> I, I don't understand. <laughs> I don't either. But in 1990, he fell asleep at the wheel and collided with an oncoming car, killing himself and the other driver. Wow. Because I was going to say in 1990, I probably ate the most ice cream and drank the most Jack of every human on the planet. Does that get me something? Did you ever mix the Jack and the ice cream? Well, of course. I was doing shots while I was eating ice cream. Don't you? Did you have uh, Jack Daniels floats? No. Well. Dude, that that, that just ruins the Jack Daniels. Got to shoot it. Keep eating ice cream, shoot another one, keep eating ice cream, that kind of thing. <laughs> In 1973, 123 passengers died on an airplane because of a fire started by a cigarette. Since then, all airplane bathrooms are required to have an ashtray, even though smoking has been banned on all domestic flights since, what else, 1990. I guess I wasn't on too many planes before 1990. I'd been on a couple of flights. I don't remember people ever smoking on a plane. God, I do. And I remember those stupid ashtrays they used to have in the bathrooms. Uh, they still have some of those. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. They do. Uh, they used to have them in the uh, seat armrest things, I think, at one point in time as well, if I remember correctly, as a kid when I flew. Uh, here's an interesting thing. 
after Rat Packer, Sammy Davis Jr. died at age 64. He died in 1990, like Sonny mentioned earlier. His widow soon discovered that he was nearly broke and owed back taxes. She then had his body exhumed to strip him of the $70,000 worth of jewelry he had been buried with. He was survived by both his mother and his grandmother. How about that? <laughs> wow. Sammy's one of those guys, I don't know a lot about him. He was easily two generations before me. So I don't know a ton about Sammy. I mean, I don't know a ton about him either other than, you know, the bits and pieces and the History Channel stuff that I watch and the Rat Packers. I mean, I, I have a little bit of curiosity with the Rat Packers. I like history. So, you know, the Rat Pack. Sinatra and Sammy Davis, D. Martin, all those guys. I mean, there's definitely interest on my part when it comes to those guys. So I always find it cool. NASA uh, in 1990 deploys the Hubble Space Telescope uh, in April. So they put that thing up there. And of course, that thing has delivered all kinds of cool pictures over the years. Yeah, definitely. America's favorite animated family, The Simpsons, aired on Fox for the first time in 1990. So to this day, I have seen two Simpsons episodes. I didn't laugh at either one. Go! Go! I don't get it. Are you a fan of any animated adult type stuff? No, I've tried it all. I used to love cartoons as a kid. Yeah. Like I loved the Flintstones, loved Popeye, loved Justice League, loved G.I. Joe. I just cannot get into these adult cartoons. I've tried. Anytime somebody goes, oh, you got to try this one. I try it and I'm like, it's not funny. Yeah. Each to his own, I guess. I was a huge Simpsons fan. I watched a lot of it. I don't get into it as much anymore. I, I liked it when it was kind of, I don't know, it seemed like it was more poignant at the time. Some of the episodes that are released and I absolutely still love South Park. South Park, they can do no wrong, man. They they offend absolutely everybody. I can't believe they get away with some of the stuff they get away with, but I love South Park. It makes me laugh every time. And then last but not least, probably one of the bigger stories when it comes to world things is East and West Germany reunite, including currencies and economies. So I think the wall came down, right? Wind of Change came out this year, right? Yeah, I don't know if that came out in 1990 or not, but it would make sense since, you know, they made a podcast about it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. But anyway, let's get back into the main discussion here. Okay, so I, I wanted to share with everybody the top albums of 1990. So there's 52 weeks in a year, and only eight albums were in the top spot for the year. So obviously, we had a lot of repeat weeks so, But Seriously by Phil Collins was number one album for three weeks. It also had a week in 1989 before it got into 1990. Girl You Know Is True by Millie Vanilli or whoever was doing the singing, we don't know right now, was number one for a week. It was number one for six weeks in 1989. Forever Your Girl by Paula Abdul was number one for nine weeks in 1990 and had a number one in 1989 for a week. Nick of Time by Bonnie Raitt was number one for three weeks. I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got by Sinead O'Connor was number one for six weeks. And the only two songs I know is What If God Was One of Us and Nothing Compares to You. That's it. Hollywood, you idiot. One of us. 
was a song by Joan Osborne, not Sinead O'Connor. You can be equally as dumb as that brain farting co-host Stephen is when he is giving a bunch of useless facts. Uh, I don't know why it was number one for six weeks, but there you go. Please Hammer, Don't Hurt Him by MC Hammer was number one in 1990 for 21 weeks. Does that surprise you? Oh, 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 <laughs> Wow. If it sounded like that, it would have never got to number one. It would have gone 22 weeks if that was the case. Whatever. Whatever. Uh, Step by Step by New Kids on the Block was number one for a week, two weeks in 1989. And To the Extreme by Vanilla Ice was number one for eight weeks at the end of 90 and was number one for another eight weeks at the beginning of 91. Man, Vanilla Ice. Besides Ice Ice Baby, I don't think I know another Vanilla Ice song. Uh, Rolling in my 5.0, I think, is a Vanilla Ice song, if I'm not mistaken. I don't even know what that is. I think that was the second single or third single or something like that. Yeah, there's still people in Vegas walking around looking like Vanilla Ice. So the look the look stayed, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, you've got a Z cut in your head. You, don't you have like a HW on the back of your head carved out? <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's some crazy number one albums. Well, talking about some albums that were great, I can tell you it didn't even sniff number one. There was a band from Pearl River, Louisiana called Baton Rouge. They released three albums total. The first one was in 1990 called Shake Your Soul. It got to number 160 on the Billboard 200. So it wasn't going to sniff any of these other bands. That's for sure. At this point, Lance Bullen is on guitar, Scott Bender on bass, Corky McLennan on drums, and a guy named Kelly Keeling on lead vocals and guitar, which is a name maybe you've heard of. They had a couple of singles, really went nowhere. Here's a great deep cut. Basically, everything's a deep cut on this album, but here's a deeper cut than most from the album called Hot Blood Movin'.
Yeah, so down here in the south, we call it Baton Rouge, okay? Not Baton Rouge. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Hot Blood Moving is a cool tune. We've also played Doctor off of that record. And, you know, for whatever reason, Baton Rouge is one of those bands that uh, slipped by me at the time. When I think of Baton Rouge, I think a lot about that band Tangier. So both of those bands are kind of similar for me in that I missed them the first time around. But then when I got the podcast and we started doing these episodes, I went back and I rediscovered the Tangier stuff. And there's a lot of great stuff on the Tangier records. And I think the same thing of this uh, Baton Rouge. I think there's uh, uh, several great cuts on both of their records. So definitely a band I got to go pick up some for my library. All right. So that brings me to my pick. Bruce Dickinson released Tattoo Millionaire, pulled away and went solo on this first record. This song got a lot of uh, write-up and controversy, how this song was written about Nikki Six from Motley Crue, because I guess Nikki was sleeping with Bruce's wife or girlfriend at the time. I don't know what the situation was there. I read some of it in the Heroin Diaries book, and I also read some of it in some other places as well. But I really dig this song. There's some other good stuff on the record, but by far this is probably my favorite song off that record. Check out Tattoo Millionaire.
Okay, so nothing against Dickinson. I mean, my favorite Maiden vocalist, and I'm a huge Iron Maiden fan. But just like Lennon needs McCartney, Bon Jovi needs Sambora, Adams needs Valance, and Sonny needs Cher, Bruce needs Steve. Because <laughs> some of these songs, even though Yana Gers does a great job, having no Adrian and no Steve Harris, it, some of the songs are a tough listen. I'm sorry. No Prayer for the Dying, the maiden album that released the same year, is actually better. Yeah. Do you like this song, Tattoo Millionaire? This song's okay. Yeah. This is one of the okay songs. Yeah, agreed. Okay, so let's talk TV shows. So the top 10 TV shows, some of these, oh my God, they would not make it today. I could tell you that right now. Um, Basically, in 1990, yes, cable was around, but uh, if you remember way back then, uh, NBC, CBS, and ABC were the three big guns. There was really no Fox. There was no CW Right, there was none of those guys. There's no Netflix. There's none of that crap. It's basically just the three networks duking it out for the best sitcoms, the best drama series, etc. So number ten was actually a technically, I guess, a tie: Golden Girls on NBC and Designing Women on CBS. Wow. Number nine was Monday Night Football. Uh, that probably doesn't surprise very many people, which was on ABC. There was a tie for seven. A show called Empty Nest, which I think I saw a couple of runs, but I can't remember what that show was about. It was on NBC. America's Funniest Home Videos was on ABC at tie for number seven. Those funniest home videos, I tried it a little bit. It's not funny. It, it seems like it's almost staged. I don't know. You you like those shows? No, I've never watched that show. I mean, that's what YouTube is now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. Uh, number six was Murphy Brown on CBS. Great show. They tried to come back about a couple of years ago. It didn't It didn't go over well. Uh, number five, hey, it was the time. Just it is what it is. Number five was on NBC, The Cosby Show. It was one of the biggest shows on the planet. Yep. And A Different World, which I think was a spinoff of The Cosby Show, was number four on NBC. It was what it was then. Uh, now that we know what we know, yeah, these shows are probably nowhere to be found. Number three was Roseanne on ABC. Roseanne made a comeback, and then there was some mucky muck about something Roseanne said, I think, on Twitter. Yeah. So now Roseanne's gone, and uh, the Connors is on. Yeah. So they're trying to still spin it off. Uh, Number two was 60 Minutes on CBS. And you got to remember, back at this time, your news only really came on TV. There's no social media. So you can't get really the news any other way except for the paper, which is going to be possibly a day or two late. You want any breaking news, it's going to happen on one of the networks. And 60 Minutes was basically like a part history, part breaking news type uh, show, right? Yeah, I mean, they, they've 60 Minutes has kind of maintained and been the same thing ever since its inception, you know, news stories and stuff like that. But And then number one in 1990 on NBC, and NBC had a lot on this chart. It was ABC that's struggling on this chart a little bit, was Cheers. Cheers you know, is similar to a Friends or a Seinfeld. I think it will be a mash. It will be in entertainment forever as a classic show. I don't think you can probably reboot Cheers because it was so classic, just like you can't probably reboot Friends or Seinfeld with different characters. I think the rebooting only works for like second-tier type shows. Do you you agree with that? 
Uh, well, I think they rebooted or they were going to reboot Designing Women. I know I saw something uh, regarding that. Uh, and I think they could reboot Golden Girls. I think they could definitely do something like that. So just it sort of depends. How many of these shows did you actually watch? Like, like seriously watch, not just yeah. one episode. I seriously watched Cheers. Yep. I seriously watched The Cosby Show. Yep. I was religious on Monday Night Football. Yep. And believe it or not, I loved the Golden Girls. I don't know why. Okay, fair. So I was religious on Chairs. I was religious on Roseanne. Uh, I watched 60 Minutes when they had something interesting, like a particular story that was interesting. I watched The Cosby Show and Monday Night Football, and that was it for me. I never really watched Murphy Brown, Empty Ness, America's Own Videos, Golden Girls Designing Women, Different World. I never watched any of those. Yeah, and at this point, uh, you know, I'm 21 years old, so I'm also kind of hanging on to my childhood a lot. So I'm watching reruns of Hogan's Heroes and some of those shows that I loved as a kid. Still watching reruns of cartoons a little bit, but, you know, a lot of Jack Daniels was involved, so who knows what I was watching. Yeah, I was going to a lot, a lot, a lot of shows and concerts. Uh, I just can't remember them. <laughs> well, you know, Kiss was still around, so let's get to this. You wanted the best, but you got the best. The hottest band in the world, Kiss! It's time for your historic moment on Growing Up Rock. So I saw Ace Fraley uh, this year, and there has been a bootleg floating around for a while now of his show at the Palace in Hollywood on April 5th, 1990. At this point, Ace is in the band, Richie Scarlett's playing guitar, John Regan's on bass, and Sandy Slavin is on drums. And just to let give you an idea of what the set list was, Trouble Walking, Insane, Cold Gin, Breakout. New York Groove, Rock Soldiers, Lost in Limbo, Do Ya, Shock Me, Too Young to Die, Rocket Ride, Deuce, and he would he did it with Peter Chris on this day, so I think that's why the bootleg is roaming around. Uh, Rip It Out and Remember Me. Now, this bootleg, if you can find it, has been printed a couple of times, some on Picture Dick, some on LP. I think you can find it on CD out there. It's not readily available, and if you can find it, it's probably going to be 100 200 bucks. I've never heard it, but usually these bootlegs don't have a great sound unless they pulled it straight off the board. And if they pulled it straight off the board, you know, Ace can get pretty sloppalicious, so who knows what that sounds like. But the opener on this set list is one of my favorite Ace solo songs, and here is a great tune from Trouble Walking called Shot Full of Rock.
Yep. One of my favorites off this record as well. I'll dig this tune. Yeah, Ace was uh, – <laughs> this was the year where Tony and I went and he fell off the stage. It was uh, pretty funny. He was hammered on basically every show he was doing. I can only imagine how some of this stuff sounds. But, uh, you know, hearing him do Deuce with Peter Chris, that that'd probably be interesting. Yeah, no doubt. I would like to have seen that for sure. All right, cool. Well, that brings us to the end where we're taking a look at 1990. The rest of the weeks, like I said, we got something fun planned for each week. Some guests popping in. And yeah, should be fun. Yeah, 1990 was a big year. We came up with some uh, pretty unique things. Oh my God, the trivia one has already been edited. It's really, really fun. The listeners will enjoy the 1990 stuff. And uh, we want to hear from you. What were you doing in 1990? Where were you living? How old were you? What were some of your favorite albums of 1990? So uh, just uh, hit us on all the social media or send us an email at growinguprock at gmail.com. Yeah, and I want to take this time out to thank our friend and big supporter of the podcast, Todd Herrig. Todd, you're awesome. Once again, Todd has uh, helped us out and always appreciative of Todd. He shares a lot of great feedback with us, and uh, we always appreciate Todd's uh, look on the podcast. So thank you, Todd. Appreciate you. All right, folks. Till next time, we will catch you later. See ya. Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Play us out, boys.
Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.